All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome, welcome to, this is our third Tough Questions, Real Answers event that we've done, and we want to just say thanks uh, to everybody for being here. Um, tonight's gonna be a little bit different format, so if you've come to one of these that we've done in the past, what we have typically done is have a series of questions, and then each person on the panel will take a minute, uh, respond to those questions, then we'll have a little bit of interaction. Um, I've got these two men here with me tonight, and I'll let them introduce themselves in just a moment, but what we want to do tonight is have a little bit more free-flowing type of conversation and discussion, so I do have a list of topics, and many of these I've got from our church family and other people that have submitted things online and through various venues, and I do want to deal with those, and we certainly will, um, but we also want to leave it open to asking other questions and uh, letting people interact um, at the end as well. So if you have uh, a pressing question that you that comes up uh, through the course of our conversation this evening, please just jot it down and there'll be some time at the end. We have some microphones set up uh, where you can ask questions as well. Well, my name is Alan Cagle, and I'm pastor here at Sunrise Community Church, and I have been here a little bit over 10 years now, just past 10-year mark in January, and just a privilege to be here at Sunrise, and I'm joined by Ernie Baker and Keith Foskey, and I'll let you guys just take just a minute, uh, give us just a feel for uh, who you are, context, ministry, where you serve, and uh, what, you're, uh, what you're excited about tonight. Please go first. Okay. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. It's a beautiful Friday evening. Uh, so <clears throat> my wife Rose is with me. She's toward the back there on this side. And we uh, have been married 42 years as of Tuesday, uh, this coming Tuesday. And uh, the Lord has blessed us with six children. And we have grandchildren 12, 13, and 14 on the way. Uh, we just found out that one of our youngest is having twins, so that's new for our family. And we found out she was expecting, then found out that it was twins, and then just this week found out they're probably <clears throat> identical twins. So nice. uh, we're very excited about and that. Uh, I am one of the pastors at First Baptist uh, Church here in Jacksonville, and we have two campuses. My office is downtown, but I help oversee the counseling ministry at First Baptist and then I'm involved with a ministry out in California called the Master's University and teach uh, both undergraduate and graduate classes for them. And then uh, a third thing that I'm involved in is called Overseas Instruction and Counseling, and I'm get, I guess I'm what you'd call the academic dean. So we pro provide uh, professors for seminaries around the world that have biblical counseling uh, programs, and my job is to recruit professors and organize all of that, and uh, just had a trip to Africa uh, back in January where I was teaching. So that's what I do, and hunt when I have time. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I feel bad. I'm the only non-hunter. I heard you guys talking about hunting, and I feel so, so uh, we can remedy so that. much less than than you two. Yeah. No, I uh, uh, would love to. So we'll make that happen. Okay. <laughs> Uh, my name is Keith Foskey. I'm the pastor of Sovereign Grace Family Church, which is in Ocean Way uh, near the airport. And I have been the pastor there for, this is my 17th year as the pastor. So I started as a relatively young man. My wife and I have six children and um, ranging in age from 24 down to six months uh, because... Wow. Uh, God was has been gracious, but he's kept some space. So uh, 
uh, in between our in between our children, and uh, that's the reason my wife's not here with us tonight. Our baby goes to bed at 7:30, so we felt like it would be bad if I left 30 minutes after we started to get him home to put him in bed. So, uh, so he's not here. Uh, I'm a graduate of Jacksonville Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a homegrown Jacksonvillian. I've been here my whole life, and uh, also, uh, along with being the pastor of the church, I also host a a weekly podcast called Conversations with a Calvinist, and I have a, um, a YouTube ministry that we do a lot of uh, a lot of teaching and things through that. So that's that's part of how we expand our ministry is through social media and online ministry, and uh, that's what we do. Very good, <clears throat> thank you guys. I told Keith, I said, you, "Well, you should have brought the baby because <clears throat> people fall asleep every time I start talking." So <laughs> that would have worked out. <clears throat> would have worked out perfectly. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I am uh, married as well. My wife is here and have three kids. Our kids are compacted in age uh, all within a couple of years of each other. So uh, we're kind of moved through stages of life all together, whereas you have the full range of like out of college career uh, all the way down to a uh, tiny baby. So it is, uh, it is a joy. Well, thank you guys uh, for joining us tonight and for taking some time. Um, we're going to jump straight into the deep end of the pool uh, here tonight. <clears throat> so I hope you guys are ready. There's coffee in the back if you need, uh, need some of that as we start to walk through this. So one of the big questions I feel like that always comes up inevitably when people start talking about Christianity, start talking about the challenges to Christianity, what are some of maybe the intellectual challenges to Christianity? The question of good and evil comes up. And this is a, really an age-old question that I feel like is dealt with in the Bible. But there's also some mystery around how this all works together. And so the question gets framed sort of like this. If God, is, if God knows everything and he's loving, then why does evil exist? If he's all-powerful, why does evil exist? In production, maybe some of you are involved in production, you sometimes say you can have something fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have quality, but you can't have all three. You have to drop one. So in theology, sometimes people say either God doesn't know what's going to happen God can't do anything about it, or he just doesn't care. And those are sort of, one, if you drop one of those three logically, we can explain why things are, are wrong and why evil exists. So, but biblically, we would all argue you can't really eliminate any of those things. So what would you guys say, what is your response to someone who says, I can't believe that there is a God because the world is so cruel and unjust? Jump right in, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, piggy, I'll piggyback. <laughs> I call this the Lex Luthor question. We were joking about this before we started, um, but if anyone is a somewhat of a pop culture nerd like me, you'll remember that a few years ago, a not-so-great version of Superman came out called Superman versus Batman. Well, at the end of the movie, Lex Luthor is challenging Superman about the existence of God. And he says, if God is all good, then he can't be all powerful. And if God is all powerful, then he can't be all good. Right. And so I only bring that up to address the fact that this is not something that is held in the upper echelon of academia, but rather this is a question that is really street level in regard to how people think about the existence of God. But when we talk about this question, 
we first have to be able to define what is good. And as soon as we ask the question, what makes something good or bad, we are immediately faced with the issue of having to have a standard of goodness. We have to have something against which we can compare that which is good or that which is bad. Because there, there are times where something may be good for me that's not good for you. And there may be times where, where goodness, from my perspective, is very relative. And when we go back to one of the most important debates of the last 50 years was held in California back in the 80s. It was between Gordon Stein and Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was the Christian. Gordon Stein was representing the atheistic perspective, and they were debating the existence of God. And Greg Bonson, the Christian, asked Gordon Stein, he said, he said do you believe what's, what Hitler did was wrong? <clears throat> and he said, well, of course it was wrong. And he said, well, you tell me why. It was wrong. And Stein thought for a moment, and he, and again, I'm giving this from memory, so I may be a little off as to the exact answer, but he began to talk about the, the mores of society and the way that we understand human life and the value of these things and the fact that everybody believed it was wrong, therefore it was wrong. And so Bonson said, the Christian, he said, well, what if everybody believed it was right? What if everybody agreed with Hitler that it was right to exterminate a people simply based upon their ethnic uh, background? Would that make it right if everyone believed so? And, of course, Stein had to say, no, there has to be a standard. Therefore, we talk about the transcendental value, meaning that which rises above us, transcending us, the transcendental value of good and evil. And without God, you find yourself in need of replacing the standard bearer with something. And if it's us, that's a real precarious perch upon which to stand. If we're the standard, then we got a lot of problems. So um, the very first thing when we talk about good and evil is without a standard, we find ourselves... Uh, in, a, in a bad place. Now that doesn't answer the question, but that frames the question in, okay, what is good? And I'll let Ernie jump in here if you have any thoughts. <laughs> so um, I'm going to come at this from the uh, counselor perspective as someone who deals with suffering on a regular basis and just recommend every, if this is a question your brain or soul is stumbling over uh, there's a lady who's an expert on this. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Mm, and uh, her website, Johnny and Friends, uh, she wrestles with these issues and uh, has all kinds of practical tools. But she has been a quadriplegic for 50 years and is a, a serious follower of the Lord and has had to wrestle with this whole issue of how could God, if he's loving, allow this to happen to me. Uh, she was 17 when she had a diving accident, and she has accepted it as, and this, is, this gets really, really difficult, 
difficult, gnarly, very fast, uh, but she's accepted it as God's will for her life because she says, I'm not living plan B, I'm living my plan A life. Um, that, and God has brought all kinds of amazing good out of this, including a worldwide disability ministry. Now, I think it also would be important for us to be humble and say, probably for any of the questions we're going to talk about tonight, we don't have complete answers. Right. So, uh, and this one, certainly, we're, we're starting off with one of the most difficult questions, and we don't, we're not God, so we don't know the mind of God and how all of this uh, fits together, but Scripture is very clear that God always uses evil to accomplish good, um, and I can give you loads of examples of that, uh, from wars to personal experiences to uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, that God promises to work good out of evil. And the ultimate example of that we're, is we're about to celebrate, which is Easter, and if you ask yourself the question, who put Christ on the cross, um, you know, the Roman soldiers put Christ on the cross, uh, Jewish people put Christ on the cross, um, we put Christ on the cross because of our sin, but God the Father also put Christ on the cross, it was part of his eternal plan. Now, how do you fit all of that together uh, that, I mean, I can honestly say that's above my pay grade <laughs> yeah. um, because I don't have the mind of God. But I do know that God promises he's always going to work a good out of evil. Yeah, that's so helpful. I, I resonate with both of those answers. And a, a couple of things I would footnote on there as well. Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean there's not a reason. Yeah. Uh, sort of like saying I can't see a virus, so therefore it doesn't exist. Like, well, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's it doesn't have some intentionality uh, in the mind of God. And that's what I was trying to get at too. Yeah. Is we're finite beings, yes. and I don't have all the answers. So, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's a humble, honest way to look at it. And so, even the Job story, you know, the response to Job is to you, you have to lean into the character and the nature of God. Mm. Um, when you don't understand. And I think that's what you're saying with the Johnny Erickson Tata as well. Yeah, this was, for some of you, maybe if you're curious, we do have some books in the back, and hopefully this will be a help to you. Uh, this was C.S. Lewis's problem. Uh, many of you are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis. This was his issue. Uh, he lost his mom to cancer when he was nine years old, went into a pretty dark place for much of his teenage years and finally came to the conclusion there can't be a God because if there were, he wouldn't have let my mom die. And it was very deep, very personal. Um, she died. He has a distant relationship with his dad. His brother goes off to boarding school and he's just very distant and very dark. And as, as he develops, uh, he writes about this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And then in Mere Christianity, which is another one of his books, he's wrestling with this issue and he finally concludes this, one of his famous lines. He says, it turns out atheism is too simple because it can't give us the category of good and evil. And later on, he says, from the perspective of the surgeon, the tumor is evil because it's trying to kill his patient. But from the perspective of the tumor, the surgeon's evil because he's trying to kill the tumor. And so he says, who gets to decide what good and evil is? And so you have to keep pushing back to a standard. And so I would say it this way, the problem of 
evil is a uniquely Christian problem, or at a minimum, a uniquely theistic problem. You need God in order to have the problem. There's no problem if there is no God, because the world's just doing what it does. You know, if the alligator eats your puppy by the retention pond, he's just doing what gators do. If the neighbor takes out your dog, well, now you got issues. There's a moral component attached to that. And so what explains the moral component that people universally feel? And so just to say God can't exist because something evil has happened, and I do think evil is a, a, a real concept that people understand and know, it, it doesn't really answer the question. Um, it might reveal our hearts, uh, but it doesn't answer the question, um, at least not to any satisfaction for me. Can I, real Please. quick story, just to, yes. this is not just our problem, but all religions wrestle with this right. this issue. And uh, real give you the nickel version rather than the dollar version of this story but I was pastoring in Virginia a man in our church had a hunting accident severed his spinal cord he and I were both members of the local rotary club and uh, the local Unitarian minister uh, he would take every opportunity he could to give me a hard time as a Christian and I showed up to rotary that week and this this man that was from our church that severed his spinal cord, he, the Unitarian guy just could not wait to ask me at lunch on that Thursday, okay, so where was your God when that happened? Mm. And how are you going to explain that to your congregation? Mm. And so I had already been thinking through the issues and I was preparing my sermon for that Sunday because I was going to have to address this tragedy that had happened to our church that week. And then, so I explained to him, here's what my sermon's going to be about. And uh, I think one of his questions was, how are you going to tell, or how did you explain that to his children? He was kind of a mocking voice. And and then I turned to him. I thought, I'm not going to let him get away with this. And I turned to him and I said, so how would you explain it? Mm. And he goes, I don't know. And I thought, there you go. So it's not just our issue that we're trying to explain, but... Uh, a lot of people struggle with this. Yeah, as some apologists have said, you, you have to get people to doubt their doubt. Because I think they just sort of have this platitude. They'll just throw out, well, evil and suffering exist, so therefore God can't. It's like, well, have you really thought through that? You know, why is that? And doubt your doubt. Um, demand the same reasons from your doubt that you do for what you're positively affirming um, as well. So I, I, think, I think that's an important point. Yeah, if we, if, if, if we are all sacks of stardust that simply exist for a finite period of time and there is no eternal value to human life and all of this is simply us on a rock, you know, third one from the sun, if, that, if that's really our nature that we are, in fact, as uh, I, believe, I believe it was Krauss who said we were just stardust. Um, Sagan said that. Carl Sagan. Well, Sagan said it, but Krauss is speaking more specifically on the issue of uh, the nature of human value that we, you know, he was saying essentially that we are, it's not that we don't have any value, it's we don't, it's that our value is not eternal. Mm -hmm. So so, So one of the things that we find in atheism is that is the desire to find some meaning and purpose uh, 
that, that is temporary because there is no belief in eternal things. Therefore, we have to find value in, 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 in the temporary things. And you begin to, again, push that back to its logical conclusion and you find yourself in a situation where, um, you know, this is, if this is all there is, this ain't much. If this is all there is, uh, then, you know, really, you know, why is, why is the ultimate goal of all human beings not simply the, 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 the accumulation of self and purpose of myself? And this is what we see in a godless society is, is me. The focus is on me. Mm-hmm. And um, so, anyhow, this is in regard to what are we? I remember a man, years ago, I was sitting at a table with a man who had just lost his daughter to cancer. And we were talking about God and with our wives. So it's me and him on one side, my wife and I, or my wife and her friend on the other side. And this young man just walks up to the table and he says, uh, I heard you talking about God and I want to ask you why you believe in God. (laughs) And I said, wow, it's not often the fish jump right in the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Sit down. And throughout the conversation, he had you know, objections, and we sort of dealt with those objections. And at one point, I said, your girlfriend is not happy that you walked over here, is she? And he said, no, she's not. She didn't want me to come over here. I said, well, I can tell. She's a little embarrassed. I can see her over there, and she's ready for you to leave. So I want to ask you this question. I said, do you love her? He said, well, yeah. I said, but she's just a sack of stardust. (laughs) And he goes, I get what you're saying. Yeah, there's more to this. Even love and joy and all of these things that we know have eternal weight. It's more than just a sack of stardust. And that's just a thought to add to that. That's good. Very good. Let's move on to another issue here that's related but with a slightly different um, application of that. So moving into talking about the nature of the church and the nature of Christ's followers, some people have said that Christians have found themselves oftentimes on the wrong side of history, as it's often said today, atrocities that are done in the name of Christ, thinking about things like the Crusades, things like shadow slavery, you know, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, how do you reconcile what has been done under the banner of the name of Christ, which, which just seems like there, there are actual atrocities that have, that have happened. And I know, Ernie, you've, you've done it, some deep dives into the Civil War. That's a, a personal interest and area of study. In fact, it, I went to Ernie's office one day, and he has a, was on your shelf. It's like a, it's a bullet from a, like a tree uh, that, from the Civil War. So you've done a lot of study on that. And I remember uh, Mark Knoll's book came out years ago, The Civil War is Theological Crisis. And Knoll really, it, he frames up the idea of the Civil War as, as a crisis of theology. Both sides were praying to God. Both sides thought God was going to give them victory. How do you put all that together when you have Christ followers that are doing things that aren't very Christ-like? And does that invalidate what they stand for? How do, how do we put all that together? a massive question but (laughs) (laughs) that's why you're here (laughs) so i'll talk about the civil war a little bit as a theological uh, and i haven't read that book but when you get sent me the email i thought i've got to read that book yeah 
Um, I heard somebody argue one time that if the church could have reconciled its differences the 40 years before the American Civil War, that uh, maybe the Civil War wouldn't have happened because, uh, I mean, you, some of you may know that's where Southern, Bap Southern Baptists came from right. was the divide with the Baptist church pre-Civil War was all unified north and south, but then the the church split in the years before the Civil War with uh, the, the South taking the side of slavery and um, using the Bible to defend slavery, and that's a whole different uh, discussion that has to do with how you interpret the Bible with hermeneutics. But I've pondered that question for a lot of years of how could the church have done conflict resolution better <laughs> in the pre-Civil War years, and it wouldn't have led to the American Civil War. Um, so just because someone claims the name of Christ doesn't mean that everything in their life lines up with what they claim. And I would be the first to hold up my hand and say, I've got plenty of areas in my life. The, the biblical um, term for that is that we need sanctification. I, I need a lot of holiness in my life. So just because I claim the name of Christ doesn't mean that everything in my life is consistent with what I claim. Uh, Gandhi said one time, uh, supposedly Gandhi said, uh, I don't have a problem with your Christ, it's his followers that bother me. And I've pondered that a lot too because I do a lot of church conflict resolution and I do a lot of marriage uh, conflict resolution and there's a lot of nasty things that go on in church conflicts or in marriages that claim the name of Christ. So that's one thing I would say is just because someone claims the name of Christ, and it's certainly true in my life, I'm not living totally consistent in every area of my life. Uh, I know there's things that the Lord, you know, if the Lord could show me my heart and he would be speaking to me right now and he would say, that needs to change, that needs to change, that needs to change. So that would be my first shot at that mm -hmm. answer. I think that one, I would agree with Ernie on that not everyone who names the name of Christ is a good representative of Christ. That is a truth that we all should confess and believe. Um, and it's unfortunate because it's caused the church to receive titles like hip hypocrisy, mm -hmm. things like that. We know that that does happen. But also... Um, and, and this is a somewhat difficult thought, but sometimes when we examine history from certain perspectives, we can see that God's hand was moving in a way that we would not maybe think would have been the way that we would have done it, but then we remember we're not God. Um, you know, I... I I, I am in no way supporting the Crusades. So what I'm about to say, you guys may kick me off the chancel. <laughs> but there's, you know, had it not been for the Crusades, though, we may be speaking Arabic right now. I mean, there are things God does in ways that we don't agree with because we're not God. We, or maybe I say don't agree, we don't understand. 
But you understand that, that there are times when movements happen and things happen where we can say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And the person who said that was Joseph, who had been sold into slavery. He had been abandoned by his brothers to the, the slavery of, of Potiphar, and, and in Potiphar's house, been accused of attempted rape, thrown into prison, only for God to raise him up as the second in command to Pharaoh and all of Egypt for the purpose of saving many people alive. And years later, when his brothers are faced with the, with the conflict of having done this to the man who is now powerful enough to destroy them and their entire families, they're scared to death. And the only thing they think that's keeping them alive is that their father is somehow standing in the gap. So when their father dies, they go to their brother. And they say, well, he didn't want you to hurt us. <laughs> he wants... <laughs> And Joseph cries. He says, why would you think I was going to hurt you? And their response, of course, is, well, you, you, we did evil to you. And he says, but what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm -hmm. To save this day many people alive. Uh, when I was, I tell this story a lot, and I, I, but it's a personal story. When, when I was seven years old, my parents got a divorce. It was the worst possible moment in my life. Looking back at my young age, I begged God, even though I wasn't a believer, I, as much as a child can beg God, I begged that my parents would not get a divorce. My dad meets my stepmother. She makes me go to church. And when I say made me, it was for real. <laughs> but I am now the pastor of the church I grew up in. I would have never known that church. I would have never known those people had, had that event not happened. Now, is the divorce sinful? Yes. But what, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And I can see it now when I couldn't see it then. So having somewhat of an eternal perspective helps. And again, please don't come to me later and say I was supporting the Crusades. I wasn't. I was simply giving a, an object lesson in God using something evil to bring about something that may be part of his plan. Yeah, you know, Acts 2, <clears throat> Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost, so you have the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts, which is the early formation of the church, and Jesus has just been resurrected, and they're telling a story of what happened after that, and Peter stands up to preach, and at one point he says that Christ was crucified, you crucified him, according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. Mm -hmm. Like, so who did it? <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, you did it, and it was God's plan that that happened as well. And so I do think having a big view of sovereignty, it helps us frame the question. But I think as, as we mentioned with another question, some of the details we still are scratching our heads on. Sure. And I think that's okay uh, for us to, to admit that and to say that. Yeah. It, this also brings up the question of, okay, what, what are the characteristics of a true follower of the Lord? Right. And if you're curious about that, the book of First John addresses that. Uh, what does it, you know, how do you know if you're really a follower of the Lord? And then, but even those who are real followers of the Lord, I've already admitted to you, I have a lot of areas in my life where I need to grow. And lust of the flesh, scripture talks about lust of the flesh, um, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Uh, those are still operating um, 
theologically we call it remnant sin. So even for those who are true followers of the Lord, there is still capability on the inside that has not died yet to fulfill desires like, and you think about the Crusades or whatever other things you, you, you think of, of desires for power, desires for glory, um, desires for success. You know, there's all kinds of things going on inside of humans. Right. And I would, just one other thought too, as you just said that brought, brought a thought. When we think about the expanse of power which was occurring in the, in the second part of the first millennium, as the church went from being the church persecuted to the church in power, we do see the moving away from godliness and the moving toward the desire and lust for power. So what you mentioned right. with lust, we see this the result of when godliness is no longer the goal, but control. Or the glory of God. Yeah, Even the glory of God. they said it was for the glory of God. It no, really yeah, exactly. So we, do, you know, none of us are ignorant of the fact that history shows that that when when God when godless men are in control of God's church, it becomes a godless church. So, I mean, we, you know, we, there, there, there's a reality there. And so. Yeah, and we, we may not be tempted to take up arms quite in the same way as we're talking about in the Crusades, but I do think there's a cautionary tale there as well to turn Christianity into a means towards an end of power and control or influence, maybe sure. political influence. Cult leaders power. do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Christianity becomes the, it becomes the bludgeoning tool to sort of beat the rest of the world into conformity. Um, and we're, we're feeling, we're on the other side of this now, which leads into a question I want to get into. Um, as the culture's kind of shifted, <laughs> you know, uh, there used to be, uh, to identify yourself as a Christian in the culture, there used to be a certain amount of social capital that you sort of gained with that. Um, and it's, it's really shifted now to where it's actually costly to identify yourself as a Christian. So it's becoming more first century-ish, uh, I think, in the way that, that things are setting up. Which does lead us into this question. Um, something much less controversial. Let's talk about marriage attraction, <laughs> um, same-sex marriage in particular. Why can't Christians just get over it? Like, hasn't the culture changed? Uh, can't we just say, all right, this one's over. A Burgerfell decision. It's been a few years now. Can't you guys just get with the times? Um, like, it, you're... You're, you're just holding on to this remnant, this sort of outdated, fundamentalist sort of position that you held to. Um, why can't you guys just get over it and get with the times? Well, that's a very relevant topic for First Baptist Church, if mm. you've uh, yep. been following the, the news. Uh, the interesting thing about our statement, if you've been following that at all here in Jacksonville, is it doesn't mention any of it's not, neg it's not a negative statement at all. It's what we are in favor of. And the reason uh, it was stated that way was to send a message of here's what the church has always believed. This is just Christian doctrine. This is biblical doctrine. So my answer to the question would be um, I'm just a servant I'm a nobody. My opinion doesn't matter a bit. Uh, God's opinion matters. And so he's been very clear of 
what he says on the subject. Uh, there's a creator, and if you're the creator, so if you're an engineer by profession, you design something, you own the schematics, you own the blueprint. Well, God says the, uh, the earth is the Lord's uh, and the fullness thereof, the world and all it contains because he made it. Uh, that's Psalm 24, 1 and 2. So if he's the designer, he gets to call the shots. Uh, and I don't have anything to say about that. My job is just to be a servant and to submit. So in the midst of a culture that where everything's relative, it's not that the church, the church has always believed this. We're just stating our historic doctrines that the church has believed for 2,000 years. It's the culture that has changed, but I don't have any say in the matter. It's because I have a higher allegiance to someone who gives me my marching orders, and I just I have to do what he tells me to do. What would be, for maybe somebody sitting out there would listen in later, what are those, you don't have to quote them all, but key texts, where, where, where are the pegs that we really need to wrestle with and have an understanding of in order to get this issue of marriage and gender biblically right? Certainly Genesis 2. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it's uh, in the, the Greek term for Genesis means beginnings. So it's about foundations, it's about origins, and second chapter of the Bible uh, is very clear at the end of the chapter about two genders, purpose of the two of the genders, marriage, and even though it doesn't mention homosexuality, that is the chapter that when New Testament writers uh, quote the Old Testament, they inevitably go back to Genesis chapter 2, which sets the standard of what was God's original intention. Genesis 1 and two. Yeah. Interestingly, I heard the president quote Genesis chapter one, hmm. um, and he quoted it in favor of transgenderism. But he he said, "We're going to defend your rights as image bearers." Well, that's Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight. But he left out the part of the verse, the very next phrase that says, "Your image bearers, male and female." And right. I thought that was quite convenient to quote part of the verse in favor of your position, but leave out the part that says there's two genders. Yeah, yeah. You asked about verses, and I think Ernie is correct. And, and of course, we go to Genesis. Um, and I would also... I mean, we could point to several passages in the New Testament, which I know have, within the last decade, have come under much deeper scrutiny because of some of the literature that has come out in arguing that these things do not really teach about homosexuality, but rather dealing with things like pederasty and things like that, mm -hmm. which are um, being... Uh, being assumed but not proven. I, I don't think that these things have been proven, but things like Romans chapter 1 where it talks about the man leaving the natural use of the woman and burning with a desire for another man. That certainly references homosexual uh, lifestyle, the, the woman giving up the desire for a man. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 refers to a term which is 
relatively interesting uh, because the term is arsenicoites, and the, the, the phrase there literally means one who has, a, has sex with a man, a man having sex with another man, and it's, it's preceded by the word malakoi, and the word malakoi is, means soft or effeminate. And so the, the two words together are literally referring to the active and passive participants in the homosexual act. And so it's very specific, um, and, and yet we'll be told, we don't know what it means. No, we know what it means. We literally know what it means, uh, and we knew what it meant for 2,000 years. Right. It's only been in the last 20 years that this has become an issue, and the reason why it's become an issue is because of what Isaiah says. Isaiah says that, woe unto them who call good evil and evil good. When there is a when there is a inversion of what is right with what is wrong, you begin to exalt in evil and you begin to put away what is good. I I, I think it's fascinating that we even have to defend the biblical concept of marriage as being one man and one woman because from a historical standpoint, we really don't have to. This has never been a debate. For, two th- for, 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 for as long as we've been on this earth, everybody understood these things. And then somebody came along and said, no, we haven't. And everybody went, okay. No, we did. We knew. We knew these things. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but it's like, every, it's, it's, it's like somebody came along and said, You're, you, we, we can't know that. Okay. No, we can't. We can have some confidence, and we can speak boldly, not ugly, but boldly. I think that's what First Baptist has done. They've, they've, they've made a bold proclamation. This is what's good. This is what's good. We're not going to invert that for what's evil. We're not going to change that and call evil good. Now, does that mean that we don't love people who are engaging in these things? No, and, 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 and someone who says, well, you have to affirm them to love them. Well, what do you mean by affirm them? I affirm their humanity. I affirm their dignity. I don't affirm their lifestyle in the sense that it is a destructive lifestyle. And this is where it comes where somebody says, well, keep it in the church and leave it out of the government. Well, that is an unsafe idea because now you've said that we are allowed to simply say that the government is not, in fact, responsible to God. But the government is responsible to God. Romans 13 says the government is a minister of God to bring blessing upon those who do good and to bring justice upon those who do evil. And when the government is blessing those who do evil and bringing justice against those who do good, now we have a whole problem where nobody knows what's right anymore because, as you said, the the very highest office of the land says what? Well, the image of God is their image bearer, so therefore we should affirm them. Well, do we affirm everyone who's an image bearer? Do we affirm everything everyone does simply because they bear the image of God? No. So we have to consider that as well. And as I said, it, it, it becomes an issue of are we willing to simply say enough's enough? I, I, I want to. There's two ways to handle this type of an issue. You can be very. Um, passive and say, well, let's, 
let's step back and let's think about this and let's be very very, very soft and gracious and, and kind. Or you can just say, I don't think so, Skippy. I just, I don't, no, it's not right. You know what? You say, well, that's traditional. What, what makes something a tradition? Well, when we've done it for this many years, let's, you don't tear down a fence until you realize why it was put up in the first place. That's what, you know, it's been this way forever for a reason. I mean, you know, you don't tear down a fence until you realize why it was put up. And we're ripping down fences everywhere. We're ripping down fences in regard to gender. We're ripping down fences in regard to marriage. We're ripping down fences in regard to how we understand basic biology in children. We're allowing children who can't make a decision whether or not they should take an aspirin. If you go to, I've worked in the public school system most of my adult life, along with being a pastor. I was a substitute teacher for eight years. I also worked as a, as a, as a paraprofessional and working with children with special needs. My daughter has special needs. I have an autistic daughter, so I've been around this a lot. Children in school can't go get an aspirin without their parents' permission, but they can seek out gender-conforming surgeries without their parents' permission. We have lost our minds. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's so, such a, there's so much out there, and there's so much literature coming out now. Um, so those who, who deal with genuine gender dysphoria, where they, they feel like their, their gender identity, to whatever degree, we would hold that that's you know, a thing in your biological sex. So that's a, that's a division now. Uh, so uh, biological, biological sex versus um, identity, how you choose to identify how you choose to identify and present, all those sorts of things. Um, uh, right around 80% of those cases get resolved as one goes through puberty. And so, but now part of the solution that we're offering for that is puberty blockers, yeah. which is the one thing statistically that's going to actually fix the problem. Um, it's really, it's really madness, uh, some of these things that are going on. Um, I want to back up just for a second on the on this, this issue of marriage and just go down another path here for just a moment. I, some people will say, well, God made me this way. I have this desire, right? And what, what do you do with that? Um, I have this desire, if you're a man, for another man in a sexual way or a woman with a woman. And I would say you might have that desire. Um, that, that could very well be part of, of the way that you are. Um, I would say it's part of the fallen nature within us, though, and it's not a good part. And here's a, here's a simple way to think about this. Does anybody have a desire that's not good for them ever? <laughs> All right. Have you ever had a desire that's not good? I like Taco Bell. Talk, Taco Bell at 11 o'clock at night, bad plan. That's a bad life plan. It's a desire. Um, it's not a good desire. And so... At some point, you have to say, it's possible that I want something that's not good for me. And so just because you have a desire doesn't bless that desire and say, well, you know, I'm in the image of God, and so therefore I have this desire, I have to act on this desire. Like, you really don't. Um, you really don't. And you brought up the First Corinthians 6 passage when you were talking about where Paul is actually pretty explicit, uh, what he's talking about there in First Corinthians 6. And the Bible always conceives of the idea of sexuality. It, it's not, it doesn't really speak so much to the attraction um, issue. It's always in terms of, of what you do, um, how you act on that. And so, at least in, in regards to gender and attraction and, and things of that nature. 
So it, it is part of that. Um, one other thing that I would footnote on this whole conversation, I think it's already been brought up, but you have a thread that gets pulled in Genesis 2, 24. You have marriages between a man and a woman. Jesus, so we're pressing forward. We don't know exactly how many years, but a lot of years. Pressing forward to Jesus, quotes Genesis 2, quotes it, says this is a biblical definition of marriage. He's actually being challenged on, uh, by the Pharisees on divorce. Um, and he quotes biblical perspective view of marriage. Paul, learning from Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, grabs that same example in Ephesians 5. So written, you know, what, we're another 25 years later, 30 years later, uh, something in that ballpark. Um, in Ephesians 5, and he also quotes that. But Paul does something really profound with this. Uh, he says that what you have in a marriage, a man and a woman, it's a picture of the way Christ loves his church. And so the church is now conceived of and viewed as the bride of Christ. And I don't think Paul was just grabbing a convenient illustration from the culture and saying, hey, Christ loving his bride, it's sort of like this. I think it's actually the other way around. Marriage, then, is an imperfect representation of, of the real of, of the ultimate marriage of the way Christ loves his bride, the church of God, his people. And so that's one, at least a part of the reason why I say we can't just give this up. It's too integrated into the, to the biblical storyline. If you start ripping this piece out, you've really done a number on your biblical theology. And, and the through, one of the through lines of scripture with this idea of complementarity and uh, the union of Christ and his church, uh, which sort of builds really um, all the way into the book of Revelation you know, the, with this great union of Christ and his bride. So I, I just, and sometimes with tears in our eyes, we just have to look at people and say, we, we just can't give this up. We just can't, we're not free to redefine marriage because we didn't define it in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's not ours to define. It's been defined. And so we are simply representing, and that's what you were saying um, as well, Ernie, we're representing a reality that, that we believe is clearly taught in the scripture. Can I just add one sure. quick thought about, because this, I mean, this gets suppressed so much of, uh, we're called haters mm -hmm. and I can give you so many illustrations of how you can be against something but still love a person. And I've had many people say to me, you know, that's not possible. You know, if you're, if you're against my, what I want to do with my lifestyle, then you must hate me. That's not true. So I had a brother who was a, he was doing all kinds of things that were hurting his life. And we pled with him. We cried with him. Uh, we warned him. And he died prematurely. Uh, he's five years younger than me, and he died at age 52 uh, just because of his whole lifestyle. And uh, I loved him dearly, cried many times uh, over my brother. But I had to tell him there were things that I, I just don't agree with the way you're living your life. The same thing with children. My children, six children, there's, I love my children, but when they were doing things that in, violated some kind of standard uh, of Scripture, going back to what you were saying, I don't make the rules. I just do what, what God who wrote Scripture tells me to do or tr try to anyway. I had to remind my children of the standard, and that didn't mean I hated them. Yeah. 
And so what we're saying is that the Lord has created the world by wisdom. He's revealed his wisdom for the world in his word. And we would make the argument in the culture, in the world, it's best for humanity to follow God's plan. Even for people that don't embrace Jesus as the Messiah and aren't Christians, we would still say it's best for humanity. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Everything has a design. Yeah. Yeah. I have a saying that we have said for years, it's to do life the way the author intended is the best way to do life. Yeah. He's the author of life. He made it, therefore, do it the way he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nature has a nature. It, yeah. It's built with design, yeah. uh, design elements to it. And I think it's, a, I think it's amazingly <laughs> self-evident. I just think we're, we're in an emperor, no clothes you know, type of conversation sometimes. Uh, with this one. Well, let's move on to something easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is tough questions, real answers. So I, I want to talk a little, uh, a little bit about uh, sort of what we could call uh, personal or maybe existential uh, crisis that different people have had over the years. Uh, one in regards to churches in general and how they haven't always been a good representation of the body of Christ, and we've we touched on this a little bit talking about the crusades and atrocities, but I want to talk a little bit more about that with regard to the local church, and then I also want to talk about that at the individual level as we just have this increasing number of people who are experiencing depression, sadness, loneliness, so I want to, I want to talk about these kind of personal existential, so let's talk about the church element first. I've heard people say, um, I've had bad experience with church there was uh, maybe spiritual abuse that took place, maybe physical, sexual abuse that took place. It wasn't safe for me. I've been burned by churches. Um, people are judgmental. They're harsh, unkind, unloving. And at the end of the day, one of my objections is the church just doesn't work. It doesn't work. All these things that they say, it doesn't, it doesn't work like they say it should. So what would your response be to somebody who feels, who feels that? It's very... It's very personal, obviously, um, pe- people that are, that are saying things similar to that. One of the funniest things I've ever heard is the church often is like Noah's Ark, pretty stinky on the inside, but a whole lot better than being on the outside. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> like so yeah. I've been in ministry, I'm in my 43rd year of ministry, and uh, everything you just described, I've experienced as a pastor. Hmm. So why am I not bitter? And, uh, I mean, I've been through church conflicts. I've had mediators have to be called in because we had a church split going on. And um, and now I'll write on those subjects of church conflict. And I'm actually writing an article for Focus on the Family right now for pastors on how do you come through church conflict and not be bitter. And... Um, the answer for me is I'm in love with the Savior and my my eyes can't be on the people because they're just like me. My eyes have to be on Jesus. He's the ideal. And if I didn't have if I had my eyes on people and all the ways people have hurt me and failed me through the years, I'd be an extremely bitter person. Uh, but that's where my hope, my hope can't be there. My hope has to be on who the church is about. And 
that keeps you from bitterness. Uh, that helps you to be a forgiving person. That helps you to believe in the, God is going to make all things right. You know, there is, uh, I was working on that article this afternoon and was reminded of scripture that says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. I don't have to keep the record books for all the people that have hurt me in the past. Uh, there's a God of justice. He's going to keep the record books. But the summary would be, if your eyes are on Jesus, um, and I, I would wonder if that's, at some level, I understand the hurt, but at some level, could it be an excuse of, I just, I don't want to be part of that. I love I love the church. I've given my life to serving the church, but the church is other humans. It's full of other humans like right. me. Right. I think we also would do well to consider that not every church is functioning biblically. And so oftentimes what we find in the situations like you described abuse and things like that are there, there's a there's an element that is your the behavior that's going on is indicative of the underlying problem that this that that the, the institutional structure of that particular place is not sound um, and what we've done is we've become convinced that there are no good churches I mean that's what a lot of people just and it's just going to be me and Jesus on on an island somewhere, and I don't need the church. And and yet the Bible is so clear that one, the New Testament by and large is written to churches. Um, it is written about churches, and it's written about things that happen in churches. So it's not an anti-church book. And somebody says, "Well, I'm just going to take my Bible and go sit on an island by myself." Well, you're going to be reading about a lot of stuff that you can't do by yourself. You can't do the one another's alone. <laughs> and, and there's all these things that we're supposed to do one another with. So um, I, I would say that, yes, there, there are a lot of churches that, are, are, um, that, that, that have an unbiblical ecclesiology. That's the fancy word for the doctrine of the church. And because ecclesiology, one of the only things I've ever written is I wrote a book called A Biblically Functioning Church. And it is about what the Bible calls us to as, as, a, as an organization, as a body, that there is a model that we're supposed to be following. And uh, even when we follow that model, it doesn't mean things are perfect, but if you don't follow that model, it's very apt to fail uh, and, and produce a lot of problems. So I think, I think, first of all, are we seeking to do church the way the commander has, has given us the model? Um, and I say the commander, I talk about Jesus being the captain of the ship. You know, in so many churches, Jesus is not in charge. And you know if Jesus is not in charge when you went and you go and listen to the sermon and it's not from God's word. Then if, if, the, if the sermon's not from God's word, then God's not in charge. If the sermon's not from Christ, then Christ is not the captain. And you're, you, there, there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of problems that flow out of that. And uh, as I said, it's not the only problems. I mean, obviously there, there are other things, hypocrisy, uh, unbelief, doubt, which we're going to talk about doubt in a little while, um, that, that creep in and cause other issues. And, and, and ego and sin, desire for self, desire for 
desire to have one's own wishes be the only thing that matters. There's all, there's all kinds of things. And as you, you talked about the remnant of sin in all of us, that is a struggle. My, my wife has a, uh, she, she's on some Facebook groups where she talks to other pastors' wives, some from all around the world. And sometimes she gets to hear stories that are horrific mm-hmm. of the way other pastors have been treated. I'm so grateful for the church I'm in because they're so sweet and kind to me. But, we, but, but that doesn't mean my life is a bed of roses. I'm just thankful that the people love me and, and I love them. Um, and, uh, but you're right. I heard R.C. Sproul one time say, he said, if you keep your eyes on the sheep rather than the shepherd, you, you're, you're doomed to be miserable. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of positive things. I mean, this is all negative about the church, right. so let's be positive for a little bit here. Amen. There's <laughs> so many good things going on in the church and so many good things that the church does and uh, you know for example even though first baptist has been in the news in a negative way recently we've got so many good things going on so for example we have a counseling ministry with 40 counselors and we provide free counseling to people that need help and over the last i don't know how many marriages by the grace of god we've seen saved over the last seven years uh, that i've been at first baptist and it just keeps getting better and better and um, and it's not that's not just true of First Baptist. The, the church, in the name of Christ, is doing so many wonderful things around the world. Um, amazing things. I mean, think of Samaritan's Purse with mm. Franklin Graham and what he does, and just the church is amazing. Uh, yeah. But the church has humans in it, and so therefore it doesn't function right all the time. Uh, it's, it's good, and I'm glad you lead us down, a, down that track to remember the good. And I guess my first response to someone who says things like that is sadness because personally I've experienced so much good mm-hmm. in the church. Uh, and again, like, like you, Keith, I'm very grateful for a church that loves us well. It uh, doesn't mean everything's easy. doesn't mean you don't get criticism. It doesn't mean any of those things, but I'm, I'm very grateful, and I feel a sense of sadness that other people haven't experienced that kind of community because it's it's just an incredible help and encouragement as you as you pursue Christ and walk with him so I I do I do resonate um, with that what you said Um, I think I think we need to be careful as well that we don't too quickly dismiss those concerns from people and not that anybody's trying to do that but I do think we need to hear it uh, that that's coming from a deep sense of, of hurt, and it's an open wound that could take a long time um, to, to work through. So, you know, if you get, if you get so, something goes terribly wrong in a relationship, uh, you're, just, you're just not real eager to put yourself in that position again right mm-hmm. away. So I, I get it. Um, I really do. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you point out what the church has done, the good that's happening. Yeah, I remember reading uh, Alvin Schmidt's book, uh, How Christianity Changed the World. I don't know if you guys have read that one, but he goes through just by eras, and he talks about the influence of Christianity and how the world has been changed, quite literally, by Christianity. He talks about the gladiator games that were ended. If any of you guys have ever been to uh, the Colosseum in Rome, there's a right at the top at one of the levels, there's a cross. Uh, they put this cross up to commemorate that it was the Christians that sort of boycotted the games and, and made the gladiator games stop. Um, so he talks about that. He talks about early orphan care and really all the way through the history of the church. Um, 
they used to dump babies over uh, the bridge, and the Christians would go down there with nets and catch them. And so, <laughs> like, Christians have just always been at the front and center of, of doing good in the world. And so we praise the Lord for that. You know, nursing, really, with, through Florence Nightingale was sort of a Christian thing that kind of started, you know, healthcare. Yeah, um, the, the hospital, Baptist Hospital, St. Vincent's Hospital. Thing. Thing. <laughs> I know. I, I've joked about that before. I, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know of a hospital name for an atheist. Like, <laughs> I mean, they're all, like, everywhere you go. Seventh-day Adventist and, you know, Baptist and, um, you know, there's a lot of Catholic, you know, hospitals. And so, you know, there, there, there are a lot of good things that have happened in the name of Christ um, in the world. And so we, we don't need to dismiss that. I think that's a very real, very real point. Very good. Okay, well, let's, let's move then. I want to talk, so that was the, we're, we're talking about sort of this personal, existential, individual sort of crisis. Let's talk a little bit more on the individual level. Um, some of you may have seen the CDC recently released a study, and it was a study of teens, and it was a pretty wide-ranging study, uh, things like sexual behavior, drug and alcohol abuse, um, experience of violence, mental health, suicidality, things like that. I want to pick up on just a couple of, it, it's, a, it's a long study, I actually printed it out if anybody wants to look at it tonight. Um, it's 80-something pages uh, here, I think 89 pages. And it's it's really interesting study to, to glance through if you if you have a minute to look at that. But I want to give you some numbers, and I want to hear you guys respond to this, these numbers. So under this section, the question was, and this these the comparison points, so the benchmarks, the study was last done in 2011, and so these numbers are from 2021. All right, so that's the decade we're talking about, the comparison points, 2011 to 2021. People, teens, who said they experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. All right, so persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. 2011, the number was 28%. 2021, the number rose to 42%. All right, so 28% to 42% experiencing persistent sadness and hopelessness. But this is really interesting as well. The numbers are disproportionate for male and female. The girls reported 2011, 36% said they felt persistently sad and hopeless, jumped to 57%, 21% increase in those 10 years. So 36 to 57% of our teenage girls are saying they feel persistently sad or hopeless. I didn't study math in college, but that's over half. Like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty shocking number to me. The boys then, there was an increase as well. Substantial increase, but much less than the girls. 21% to 29%, so an 8% increase um, in that 10-year period. So my question is twofold. Why are we seeing this rise, and why do you guys feel like it's disproportionately affecting young women? don't know the answer to the second one so I'll just state that right up yeah front but um, I'm really <laughs> concerned about those numbers I'm co-teaching a class for parents of teens right now on Wednesday nights at our church and in two weeks we're actually addressing this topic of depression and anxiety among teens for the parents and my heart is 
just breaking. I mean, the teen suicide numbers, you didn't talk about those, but the teen suicide yep. numbers in the last 10 years have right. gone up dramatically. Right. And um, it's horrible. And as I've thought about what's going on, I have to think, and you guys correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but here's my operating theory right now, is everybody senses the world's in trouble. And like even, it's easy to talk to your neighbors right now about, hey, what do you think about what's going on in the country? And you can get into really interesting conversations with just about anybody with, hey, what do you think about what's going on in the world? And what do you think about what's going on in the country? And I mean, I've had that conversation with my neighbor numerous times. And he's, we, I get into talking about the Lord very quickly with him and that that's where our hope is. So I'm wondering, as the younger generation is hearing all the older people despairing and feeling mm. hopeless, if mm. that the effect of that whole conversation of what is there to live for, um, if the world's, all the adults are saying the world's messed up, why do I want to live on this planet? So that's my operating theory, and my challenge to the parents in two weeks is going to be, hey, if you're a Christian, you need to be a person of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an eternal perspective on life, and my hope can't be on what does the United States look like for the next 15 years or 20 years. My hope has to be on what the scriptures say hope is in, what is my hope for the future, who is my hope in, and if kids were hearing their parents speaking confidently, maybe those numbers would not be what mm. they are. So that's my operating theory. I've told our church many times, if you ever look around the world and think, this is as bad as the world has ever been, go home, read Judges, and see if you still agree. It's, it's really not. <coughs> and then look up the Dark Ages. Yeah. <laughs> any, any point in history, really. Yeah, the Black Death. Yeah. Or ominous. how about before air conditioning? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, William Carrier is a saint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's right up there. He's like the Apostle Peter. And then, yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, I do want to add a thought. And um, I, I'm like you already had it. The, the, the question about the women, I, I don't have an answer to. I will say this, though, and not to be cheeky, but we're being told we can't define men and women anymore, and yet the report from the government clearly does. Right. So, you know, so, so I, I mean, because it's when it's convenient, right? We, we, we do things when we need to, when it's convenient. Um, so that just sort of a point to be made there. But um, I, I'm a little younger than you. Ernie, um, you and your wife, you said, are about to celebrate? 42 years. I'm Grace. 42 years old, which means I was born the year that you were married. So aren't so we I, getting old, honey? No, 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 please. No, I'm saying I look up to you as your wisdom and your, your, your time in this. You've been in the ministry longer, you know, as long as I've been alive. Um, but one of the things, the only I'm reason feeling I, it, brother. Well, <laughs> the only, the only it's reason, just a number. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only reason I bring up my age 
is because my generation, you know, whatever gener generation X, millennial, whatever you call it, born in 1980, we were born after the Vietnam conflict was basically over. And the beginning of my life through the 90s was relatively smooth. Even the des desert storm was such a small thing compared to Vietnam where, where we, were, we were winning battles. There were people, there, there were people in uh, Iraq who were, who, were, who were surrendering to news media people because they were ready to give up because we were fighting this battle that we just won, right? We, we had all this power. And then 9-11 happens. And we realize how absolutely desperate we are and how vulnerable we are. And my generation, for the first time, saw the vulnerability of the United States. On, on September 11, 2001, my, my wife, I, was, I was in a bread truck. I was delivering bread for Flowers Bakery, and my wife was working at Bell South downtown. So she's in a 15-story building, and we're watching buildings collapse on the news and everything changes. And now everybody starts learning about Islam, right? Because nobody knew anything about Sunnis and Suros and any of that stuff before that. When I say nobody, I mean, in general, Americans didn't care about those things. But then everything changed. And for many people of my generation, that's the seminal moment. That's, that's, like, that's what we look to is when we became adults. I was already married, but that changed the world. And since then, we've become much more consumed with politics. We have now a 24-hour news station, 50 of them, that will feed you the constant fear that everybody seems to want to live on. This fear of what's going on in this country, what's going on in this state, what's going on in your local government. You can get it over and over. Just think every time a hurricane comes, what do you got? Every news station is somebody telling you to move three feet and you're worried to death. We have fed fear, and we push fear as, a, as, as this entertainment. And then we satisfy fear with medication. So we have all of these things. And I'm not saying medication is wrong or anything like that. I'm just saying this is, this is the cycle. We, 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 we make fear entertainment, and we satisfy it through all kinds of different means. And we find our young people now in a situation where many of you can't buy a home because home prices have quadrupled. You can't have a single income family that actually can provide for children. I'm dealing with family right now. A young couple wants to get married. They don't know how they're going to be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. Have a home. Have children. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. My, my brother sells mobile homes. So, and I live in a mobile home. That's, 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 I love them. They're, they're great. When I was looking to buy my, my house, my mobile home, $86,000 brand new for the house. The same house, that was three years ago. Same house today, $160,000. Doubled in price because the cost of material, labor, and everything has changed. Now, not everything has doubled in price, but you know your milk costs more, your eggs cost more, everything costs more. We see the economy changing. We see all these things. And you mentioned earlier, people don't have hope in anything. 
And all of these things pile on to creating depression. Now, I'm not saying these are the only things, but these, create, these, these young people look at life and say, like you said, I'm not, I'm not going to have what my parents had. I'm not going to have... I'm not going to have generational wealth to pass down in my church. I'm going to barely be able to survive. Now, this doesn't sound like maybe I'm making a Christian argument. What I am saying, though, is I get it when young people have fear because they're looking at a world that doesn't seem to be providing them with the same opportunities and options that their parents and their grandparents had. And so I know maybe it seems like I'm coming out of nowhere with this, but, but we have to be able to address where people really are on this and start talking about these as real issues and lovingly walk with people through these things and not just say, oh, you'll be fine. You know, live in an apartment the rest of your life and you'll be happier, whatever. You know, you know, we have to be able to, and we can't go buy everybody a house. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of reasons for this. I have, I have dealt with depression and anxiety since I was 19 years old. I, I, I had my first real incident with depression um, when I was working for America Online. There's my age. Remember you used to get the CDs? I remember America Online. I worked for America Online and I was absolutely fine. I was happy. I was married. Things were great. And I, I began to experience depression. I didn't even know what it was because I'd never been unhappy a day in my life. Except for, of course, I talked about my parents' divorce, but that didn't even lead to depression. It led to sadness, but there's a difference. Sadness and depression are not the same thing. Depression is like a cloud that follows you and you can't escape it. And I, I went through a time, and by God's grace, he saved me, but I still struggle sometimes feeling that cloud coming on. So sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, I feel this weight and I don't know what it is. I felt it. And at least by God's grace, I can at least minister to somebody because I've been there. So, I don't know, I feel like I may be kind of sidetracked there. Sorry. If Please. there's any subject that Scripture is an expert on, it's hope. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much hope in Scripture, and that's what I want to say to teenagers is uh, just get your hope. You, your hope has to be in the right place. I do wonder, you know, just as we're talking about this, it, it, the thought occurred to me about the girls um, what our culture does to women and the expectations to on women mm. and identity and um, right. has turned women into objects. Right. Um, and so I wonder with social media and how prevalent that is, I wonder if that would play into this with teenage girls that you know, I just can't meet the expectations. I can't, I'm never going to be that model or what, you know, whatever. Um, and I hate that our culture has done that, ha has objectified women and put that yeah. pressure on women. Yeah. That, those are really, really helpful pastoral. I, I really appreciate your responses to that. A, a few other thoughts on the study, why the increase, why has it been disproportionate? Um, one, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the baseline that we're bouncing off of in that study was 2011. Smartphone was 2012. Mm. All right, there's a factor uh, that needs to be considered. So it, we're basically the first decade of this study with phones, with smartphones, and particularly social media. Um, although I've kind of adopted a term, I read a different book, uh, it's really the social internet. 
you might think you're not a part of the social network thing because you don't have Facebook or Instagram or, or that Tic Tac, whatever that thing is. <laughs> As I heard one person say, is that the Tic Tac? I'm like, those are the mints, but <laughs> close, very close. So I, even if you're not on that, they're affecting you even just being in the world uh, that you live in. Um, it's just affecting everybody. Um, I would recommend if, and this isn't a Christian resource, but uh, certainly a helpful resource was for me. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did a podcast on this uh, called The Facebook Files. Uh, Facebook owns Instagram. Uh, and so some of our younger folks amongst us like, Insta, Facebook, that's what my grandparents do. Um, <laughs> they own Instagram as well. So like they're involved in all of these things. So they did sort of an expose of um, the effect that this is having, um, particularly on young women. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, it's a multivaried sort of thing I think we have to do to figure this out. Um, another factor I would say in why it's been disproportionate is it's a self-reported study. I think women could have a tendency to over-report. Men probably have a tendency to under-report, right? Um, there's a lot of guys that wouldn't say what you just said uh, in sure. public. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm feeling sad because there's just a certain, like, mystique you're supposed to keep up and I'm strong and I'm a man and <laughs> and so I think that's probably weighs into that so maybe those cancel each other out <laughs> you know I don't know but I think that's probably uh, part of what at least is going on um, and I do think you know I, I I think in my thinking as well the 24-hour news cycle is we're just sat saturation point we weren't meant to know everything all the time mm. we weren't know. designed to know everything all the time no not the way we do now no, and you guys, you guys both appreciate history, and I, I do too. I, I, I'll admit, I have to kind of force myself to read history. I'm not a natural history buff. That's so sad. I know. I know. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> but you do reading, hunt, so that is a, that's a I do, redeeming I do factor. Hunt. Yeah, I do. I, was, I remember reading about uh, the pirates of Tripoli on the Barbary Coast, and and reading about how it took a while for communication to go back. Like, hey, what's happening with the, you know, the ship that was uh, basically held ransom over there? And uh, it's a whole long story. And, but it took you know, weeks for correspondence to get back and forth. What's happening? And so you know, today, you don't have that. You just, you're, you're going to, like we're watching, um, I remember when the, a little over a year ago when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. I remember telling somebody, it's like, yeah, we got the Lakers and the Mavs playing tonight, and we got you know, the Pistons and the Celtics, and we got Russia and Ukraine on. And <laughs> it just felt that way. Mm. Like, we're watching everything play out in real time. It's almost like a, you know, Fahrenheit 451 kind of thing. Like, we're just watching this thing kind of play out for our entertainment. And I just don't think we're made for that. I just don't think we're made to live that way. And I think it's catching up to us. And I think particularly with teens, as they're developing, as, you know, the brain isn't fully developed, some of your developmental experts maybe it's low 20s right is that right and there are teens amongst us here low 20s that's when their brain is like fully fully formed developed so um i i think that's part of what's going on um at least and i'm not i'm not an expert on those things but but i, I do appreciate very much you know ernie your response that we actually do have an answer and that is hope in christ mm -hmm. um i was talking to a family one time and they were just looking at the world around him, thinking, I don't know if I want to bring kids into this world. It's just so messed up. And I remember talking to them about uh, the Exodus story and how in captivity, 
in these terrible conditions, and they're just having babies like crazy. <laughs> and you know, and look what the Lord did with that to like birth this nation in the midst of the the difficulty. So you don't know what the Lord's going to do with that. We we have to trust Him with that. There's well, probably it, literature on the back table about. I think I saw some little booklets about depression and yes. anxiety. Yes, yes, definitely check out the back table. Um, so I'll I'll end with this question, and then we'll we'll throw it open with to uh, anyone that wants to maybe ask a question, ask a follow up. If we don't have anything, that's fine. We'll just uh, have a little time to visit for anybody that would like to. Um, Ernie, I'll ask you, what is? We've talked about the gospel a few different times here. How would you summarize what what do Christians mean when we say the gospel? I was hoping you would ask me, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, we're coming up to an amazing time of the year um, with Easter and uh, just profound implications of what this time of the year represents. So the way I think about the gospel or the way I would summarize, what is the message of the Bible? Why do we need the gospel? Gospel means good news. Well, if there's good news, there's also bad news, uh, or else it would be meaningless uh, to have the good news. So I use all S's to describe this message, and the first S is that there's a sovereign God of the universe, and we've talked about that quite a bit in our answers, is that there's a creator, um, we were made, the good news is we were made for relationship with him. Uh, it's amazing to even think about, you can know your creator. So the message of scripture is that you could go outside and look at the stars and you, uh, according to the Bible, if you are reconciled to him through our savior, Jesus Christ, you can actually call him father. So you know that you can know the creator of the universe. So uh, there's a sovereign God. He's the creator. We're made for relationship with him, but something went really wrong. And the yes I would use there is sin. And in, so in Genesis chapter 3, this everything changes from what we were created for, for being in relationship with the creator. And sin enters the world because Adam and Eve trusted in themselves rather than trusting God, and they rebelled against his standards. Uh, I, you know, same tendency we all have, I can do it, I'll do it my way. And that's, they adopted that standard, and it impacts all of us. So scripture says we have a sin nature. Well, God could have just abandoned us at that point, and he would have been totally justified because his, his creation rebelled against him. But he, in great love, even in Genesis chapter 3, promises a redeemer. And the rest of scripture, so Genesis 3 is a turning point. It's only two, you're three chapters into the Bible, and it's a hinge point in the Bible or in the history of the world. And God promises a redeemer. And the rest of the Bible is a story of how the redeemer is going to come, why we need a redeemer. And so uh, the next S is... What's, how does this leave us? What's the situation? So we're, there's a sovereign God. We're answerable to him, and we're also made for a relationship with him. But sin entered the world and broke our relationship with the creator, so our fellowship with him is broken. So 
what's the situation? According to scripture, Romans chapter 1 says that we uh, are, uh, in a lot of other places in scripture, that we are now lawbreakers. We, by our very nature, we don't have a disposition to naturally keep the law anymore. We have a, Actually, we have a disposition to go against God's standards. And it's not just that we do that behaviorally. There's something wrong on the inside. And I've had people say to me before, why, uh, you know, God must not be a very loving God. If he's, if he's going to condemn me to death for sinning a little bit, why, how could God be a loving God? And my answer would be, well, if he's the creator, that makes him the king. And the king defines the rules of his kingdom. So therefore, what do you call a person that breaks the rules of the king? And you say that person's guilty of treason. Well, what's the penalty for treason? Uh, And scripture says the wages of sin is death. So there's a king, and we're answerable to the king of the universe. So that puts us in a really bad situation. There's a king, he's the creator, we're all going to answer to him someday, but I have this sin nature thing going on, and now I have a broken relationship, and I naturally break the law. And I'm stuck because I can't save myself. Uh, scripture is really clear. It's not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. So the next S is uh, Savior. And doesn't that make Jesus look really glorious? Is if you start with all these other S's and then you build up to, I need a Messiah. I need a Savior. And he comes riding in on his white horse and rescues us. In spite of me, it's, I couldn't save myself. I mean, I was helpless, hopeless, hellbound, and nothing I could do about it because I have, by nature, I'm a, a rebel against God's standards. I, I don't naturally obey God's standards. And Jesus died for us. He took our place on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin, and it's absolutely beautiful to think about. So the Creator becomes our savior and enters into the world to live as a human and uh, it's amazing it's profound and he takes the penalty of my sin on himself and he do, he pays something i can't pay i could never pay for it myself uh, because it's god's standard and i can't reach uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says, I could never reach God's standard. So then, well, what do you do then? Well, you have to believe that message is, okay, I'm helpless. I'm, I'm a rebel. I need forgiveness for my sins. There's a standard that's been broken, and I believe that there's one mediator between God and man, and his name is Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. And so you humble yourself and say, Father, I I am a sinner. I need my sins forgiven. And I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sin. And my last S is I call it switch loyalties. So I've been, everybody is living for something and following something. And I say, now I am... I'm a, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to live life my own way um, anymore. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death.
And every human lives that way. Like, this is my life, how I want to live. But when you become a Christian, you say, hey, I was saved at age 17. And I was bound and determined to ruin my life. And at age 17, the Lord rescued me from me. I was my own worst enemy. And um, my loyalties switched at age 17. And I, the Bible uses the word repentance. And what repentance means is I was living this way, and now I want to be a follower of the Lord. Um, and I'll, I'll conclude with this, that you know, I like to think of the gospel message, that the gospel is not just a message to believe. The gospel is a person to follow. And uh, we would invite you tonight. I'd invite you to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, my life has never been the same. And uh, it's been an adventure. And I'm thankful that the Lord saved me at age 17. Uh, at age 17, it was very clear to me that in five years, I'm either going to be dead or I'm going to be in jail. Uh, I am the kid that you warn your teenagers to stay away from. Mm. Um, really, I am. And I could tell you lots of horror stories of what I was doing when I was 15, 16, 17. And uh, I was a very deep rebel. Mm. And the Lord rescued me from me and changed my life radically. Thank you. Praise the Lord for that. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, and we, I, would, I would echo that um, for, for whoever's listening in, uh, either here or maybe listening later. Um, if, that's a, if that's a live question, uh, get some help. Get some people to think through that with you. We've got some resources here, some people that would love to chat. Um, if that's something that you would enjoy, we would love that. Well, let's take a minute, and if we have a few questions, uh, we'll be glad to entertain those. If we don't, we'll uh, call it a night and let you grab another cup of coffee. I know it's the uh, mind can only absorb what the backside can endure. I understand that. <laughs> so if you need to stand up for a minute and stretch, that's totally fine. But any questions, uh, anything that we haven't jumped into that you would appreciate um, some insight from these guys? Yes. Um, just based a little bit of what we talked about, about like issues and stuff and like where we stand and how, like y'all mentioned, like government should be based on like, obviously like the nation under God and that's how we believe it. But what, what do you think about when people say, I understand that's why you believe that because you're a Christian, but I'm not a Christian. So why should I have to believe that too? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, and uh, to be clear on what I was saying earlier, I said the government is responsible to God, um, and that is ultimately means that they're going to, they are going, everyone who's in government is going to give an account one day for how they govern. So the role of the church in that, there's three spheres of authority that God has established. He's established the home, and he's established a structure for the home. He's established the church, and there's a structure for the church, and he's established the government. And those three spheres are all answerable to God. So the role of the church is to remind the family, you will answer to God, and to remind the government, you will answer to God. And in that sense, uh, we, are, we should have a voice. We should be a voice and say, you're going to face God. And again, reminding them that there is a standard that is above them, that there is a standard against which they are going to be judged. And so uh, that doesn't mean we're always going to agree on everything as far as policy and how that works out and the distribution of funds and all of those things. But there are some things that we've always agreed on. And yet 
only in the last generation have we abandoned those things. And that's, I think, the church's loudest voice right now needs to be, why have we abandoned these things that we have agreed on for so long, such as the definition of marriage and things like that? I, obviously, we're not saying that there should be a state church. I want to be clear. Uh, we, we, we're, I'm a Baptist, uh, a Reformed Baptist, but a Baptist. And so uh, one of the key tenets of Baptist history is the separation of church and state. Not, not the separation of God and government, but the separation that the church does not have the power to have authority over the state. Neither does the state have the power to have the authority over the church. But the church does speak to the state. And that's what I was saying. We need to speak to the state and tell, remind them that there is a standard to which they will also be judged in their sphere of authority. That's helpful. And I would, I would, say, it, I would say it this way as well. There are things that we can call on the government and say you must do, and then there's other things that we can say you should do, right? Those are different terms. Um, you can't make a law for everything in the Bible. Uh, the Bible says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Are you going to make a law in Atlantic Beach for that? Um, <laughs> how's that going to work? Uh, yeah, I've joked with our people before here, if I called Atlantic <clears throat> Beach police after the service one day and say, you guys aren't going to believe this, uh, there's somebody at our church that does not believe in the Trinity, like, they do not believe in the Trinitarian God. They, they don't believe in our doctrinal statement. What are they going to ask me? Well, is there somebody that's, like, posing a threat? Do you feel like you're going to be harmed? Is there, are they trying to rob the place? Like, what, why are you calling us? Because they don't care um, about our doctrinal issues. And so that is, there is a true separation of the church and the state. But the church has a role of, you know, what R.C. Sproul called being a prophetic informant. We're supposed to <laughs> yeah. tell, the, tell the government to do their job. Um, and tell them that you're not free to redefine something like marriage um, or you're not free to uh, let criminals go or wh- whatever, whatever that is and whatever form you know, that takes um, could be different for individuals. But um, I think still the government has derived authority. Um, it, they are under God. Um, and even though they may not say it that way, they still are. And that's our worldview and that's the framework we're speaking with and through. As a history person, I have to throw in at least, again, the nickel version instead of the dollar version that the founders of the country designed our our government to function a certain way. And it's interesting to read not just the founding documents of the country, but founding documents of individual states. Right. And some of the states, when you became a leader in the state, either a senator or a delegate or whatever the state was, you had to... Uh, sign a doctrinal statement saying you recognize that someday you're going to be in a, accountable to God. And uh, we're, we've lost that, obviously. Right. And why are we not functioning? Well, our government's not functioning the way the founders intended the government to function. So, yeah, and, we're, and you we're may not, know this quote. I'm sorry. You, you may know this. I don't know the author of the quote. But the quote is that our government is only designed for a moral and religious people. Yeah, James Madison. Madison. Yes. So, I mean, our government is designed for that. And without it, we, it won't function properly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, we, we do live in a pluralistic society, so we're not trying to baptize, you know, the county. Um, <laughs> what, we're, what we're trying to do well, is in say, a sense we are. <laughs> but it's, it's not through coercion. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not the same way. Um, yeah. It's not the conquest. And so, sure. so, yeah, we want everybody to be a follower of Jesus, but we also recognize that not everybody is, and we live in a world that allows 
um, the freedom for that um, as well. Silas. Yeah, thank you guys for being here. Um, one question I have, and most of the topics we've talked about in some form or fashion has dealt with sin um, in some way. And as local church pastors, um, I'm sure you have seen and heard many outside sources within your congregation saying, well, what about this? What about that? And whether it's an explicit or implicit attack on the sufficiency of scripture, um, I'm sure you've heard it. So my question is what role uh, do you think the current church should, could, or will have when it comes to like church discipline and when you have people within your body maybe sticking to outside sources resulting in their lifestyle of sin or things like that, but um, whether member to member, you know, private ministry of the word and counseling, public ministry of the word and your, your preaching and teaching, but getting kind of to the nitty gritty, what role does church discipline have or should it have to help um, the saints and the church uh, have the influence that it should have on the world rather than the opposite, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let me let me take a, just a quick thumbnail and explain, maybe it's familiar, maybe it's not. Um, so historically, we have referred to the process of church discipline and this used to be much more commonly practiced, um, you know, in the in the in the church and uh, throughout history. And so, what we believe and what we would practice here at this church is, if somebody is living in persistent rebellion, confirmed sin, then we as a church family are responsible to go to them. Um, and Jesus laid out a process for doing this in Matthew 18. You go individually. If your brother repents, end of the matter. If he doesn't. You take a witness to confirm the charge against him. This person is, is living in defiance against God. Um, you confirm that charge. Uh, third step, it begins to go public. You take that to the church. And then the fourth step would be you, you no longer welcome them, um, what in some traditions we call excommunication. Um, and so that is the process of church discipline. Some people prefer to call it church restoration, which I like that. Uh, it's the positive side of that. We're really trying to restore the person. It's not the goal is not to kick them out. Um, the goal is to restore, and so that's the that's the heart of the question. Um, and I think Silas, what you're getting at is, what do you do with somebody who maybe has a value system that doesn't align? Maybe they're so informed and programmed by the world's standards that it's just almost incompatible with with the the doctrine and practice of historic Christianity, maybe within the local church. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. The goal, I almost called it something else. Um, yeah. Uh, no, we're not doing a good job. You, you just asked the, the, the heart of the question, is the church doing a good job? No. And, and I don't mean we, our church, or, or you guys as church, the three of us, I'm saying as, as the church in general. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't even understand church discipline as a category anymore. Last year I read a history of Baptist churches in America 
and it, and I think I could be wrong, but it was somewhere in the vicinity of like 10% of members were disciplined every year. <laughs> like, 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 like the early Baptist church practiced discipline on such a level that it was so well understood that, you know, that was practiced normally. And um, now, just recently, on I, I did a podcast about this last week, actually, because there was a letter from the Church of Christ that a lady posted on her social media page where it said, and it was a very nicely written letter, said, you have been out of worship, you have not attended public worship services for, I forget, it was like many months, maybe over a year, and it said, and, and it's come to our attention that you're also living outside of God's will for your life in regard to your home situation, and therefore, we are asking you to repent and come back, but if you refuse, then we're going to no longer consider you a member of our body. Now, get very kindly worded letter, but still making the point, you know, you've, this, is, this is it. And, and I can't tell you how many people who are not affiliated with churches, but people I know on my media pages, who just excoriated that church. Oh, that's the reason people hate the church. They're so judgmental. And I was like, that's the nicest letter I've ever read. I mean, it was so, it was not mean. It was, I mean, first of all, if you haven't been there for a year, who cares if you're not a member anymore? Like, what's the deal, right? First, it's because we don't want any correction. Nobody wants to be corrected. Nobody wants any form of invalidation. We want validation for everything that we do. And no matter how heinous an act, we want somebody to tell us it's okay. That's what social media does. It gives us an audience to, to give us a thumbs up, to give us a like. Even if I'm doing something ridiculously heinous, somebody's going to like it. And so social media gives me the outlet for that. Uh, so yeah, we're fighting an uphill battle. Uh, there was a church here in Jacksonville that uh, about 20 years ago exercised church discipline on a woman, made national news, national, Fox News, played this story. It's like, why? Again, one in 10 people in the 1800s is getting church discipline. One lady gets offended and, and, and Sean Hannity loses his mind. You know, I get a little excited. I'm sorry. But <laughs> this whole thing is based on an ignorance of, of scriptural methods. This is certainly a biblical thing. And an unwillingness to practice these things. We have long been unwilling to do these things. So, so how do we deal with it? This is how our church deals with it. We, and this is what the podcast was about, if anybody's interested. Um, I'll give you the link later. But it's, um, we talked about what a church covenant is. And a church covenant is when you join the church, you are, you, are, you are given your expectations and you are told what you should expect in return because that's what a covenant is. It's a relationship with moral expectations on both sides. Therefore, when someone joins our church, they have joined full well knowing what the expectations are. And one of those is that you would submit to the discipline of the church in the event that you were to fall into grievous sin. And so, and we define what those things are. We have an entire document that defines these things. And so I think that we have made church membership very easy. Therefore, church discipline cannot be enforced because there was no expectations set in the beginning. So all of those things, I think, are part of the issue. Uh, I mean, you, you guys may disagree, and that's fine. But, that, but I do think making, I mean, this is what you guys are earning. You guys did the document which says this is what we believe. 
and you're going to sign this, right? You're going to sign saying you believe this because you want to affirm what the church believes. Uh, just the angle on the idea of why would I uh, support the idea of uh, church discipline? So I'm a shepherd, so pastors are shepherds, and by the very nature of what I do, I am pursuing people that are, uh, you know, sheep go astray. And so we pursue people because we love them and we want to see them restored. Uh, at our church, it's called the Member Restoration uh, Committee. And we, um, we, you know, people, like you said, persistent sin that they will not deal with, mm -hmm. then they shouldn't claim the name of Christ. But we're not pursuing them to punish. We're pursuing... Because typically when somebody gets to that place, there's all kinds of ramifications in their life. Right. Yeah, and there's two kind of views. Um, it, is it remedial or is it punitive? Right? That's the, that's the question. So any, uh, we've got some lacrosse people, hockey players. If you, like, whack somebody with your stick, you have to go to the penalty box for two minutes or whatever the penalty is. Um, it's a punitive thing. You did this, you go to you go to jail, you know, for a little while, and then you can come back. Um, some people view church discipline that way. It's like, well, how long do I have to be out? You know, I did this sin, I, I do this. That's the wrong view completely of church discipline. It's remedial, meaning you, how much how much force do you exert on this individual who's living in sin, as much as it takes for them to repent, and then you you welcome them back. You know, Second Corinthians seven, Second Corinthians. Yeah, so um, the, the punishment inflicted by the majority is enough. Like, receive him back. Um, and so I think you have examples of this all throughout the scripture. So we're not, church discipline is not designed to, to just, you know, whip people. Um, it's designed for our own good. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. And it's a book about church membership and discipline where he deals with, with some of those things. So good question. Um, it's very countercultural. Uh, kind of idea and concept uh, to practice something like that and it's probably going to be misunderstood if you're in a church that has to practice that uh, just because we're in this you know sort of don't judge me uh, kind of culture um, it will probably take some very very careful shepherding um, if your church has to walk through something like that and can I just add one thought yeah. uh, and I know we're getting close on time but every one of us have admitted in this conversation that we have not arrived at perfect sanctification so none of us are living a sin-free right. lifestyle. The difference is when someone is living a habitual, consistent lifestyle of sin, they are called to repentance and they refuse. Yep. If somebody says, I'm struggling, any one of us would come alongside that brother and struggle along with them. Right. No one is seeking to simply whack people with the stick of discipline. We want to see people restored. This is for the person who has said, I'm not interested in restoration, I'm interested in pursuing my sin. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the church yeah. has to be protected from that person. And to the original question that uh, Silas posed, it, it does come down to, a, to, did God really say? Yeah, what really, did God say about this? Yeah. Are we really gonna do this or not? Um, yeah. Are we really gonna hold to God's standard or not? And it is, it is time for some churches, I think, to, to sign on the line. Um, you're going you're gonna to hold it to this or not, uh, biblical doctrine? Well, it's almost 9 o'clock. I'm going to invite uh, David to come up, and he's going to 
give just a couple of final instructions here and uh, pray for us, and we will be dismissed. Uh, we'll be around afterwards if anybody wants to continue uh, talking about any of these things or anything related. All right. Well, first, don't we want to thank our guests for the evening? We have Dr. Keith Foskey, Ernie Baker, and Alan Cagle. Give them a hand, everyone. And I just want to share this scripture. As some of you ask questions about uh, sharing the truth with your friends who may not, may not believe what you believe, I want to send, this, uh, send us off with this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect to point them to the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, so we have a book table in the back, books that were recommended by our speakers this evening, and also this is one that Alan asked me to mention. This is one that our church has, has on the book table right now. It's called Why Believe. If you have questions about following Jesus, this is a good one that will answer some of your questions. And also, there are cards on the back table. If you don't have a church home somewhere that you'll be attending for Easter, we would love for you to be our guest. All the information is on the pink card on the back table to the left of the doors. So if you'd like to talk to somebody about that, we're up here as well. So let's pray and you'll be dismissed for the evening. And so, Lord, we thank you for this gathering, Lord, that we have an opportunity to hear answers directly from your word. This is where uh, the source of truth, Lord. Thank you um, for these faithful men who have come to, to share, to, uh, to help us through difficult questions. I pray for the folks that are here tonight, Lord, that one of the answers, one of the statements would stick with them in their hearts, Lord. For the ones that are believers, Lord, that they would grow in their faith and their love for Jesus Christ. For those that are here this evening that may not know you, Lord, that they would see their desperate need for you and to see the beauty of Jesus Christ to follow you even tonight. Lord, uh, as we go, just be glorified in our conversations as we are walking out. Give us a great weekend. Thank you for this beautiful weather, Lord. Help us to glorify you in the lives that we live. We love you. Give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. We love you. Have a good night.